Uh, it's day four of our autumn, seven days machine, um, 18th of May 2016. We're going to continue reading from Zen Teaching, Zen Practice, um, edited by Kenneth Craft, uh, from an article by uh, Roshi Sanyana Grace, um, and the name of the article is uh, Seeing the Ox, a Second Look. So we'll just pick, pick up right where we, we stopped yesterday. The ten ox herding pictures clearly illustrate the need for consistent dedication to practice after awakening. Although the Kensho stories spotlight the third picture in particular, the stage of seeing the ox, the fourth through tenth pictures map the higher stages of spiritual development to be realized through continued practice. And um, these um, ten ox herding pictures are in the uh, Three Pillars of Zen, so probably most of you will have um, seen them, but just to, to um, go over uh, what, the, what they are, um, there are a series of uh, pictures which visually uh, sum up different stages of practice, and they um, became popular, I think, around the 13th or 14th century in, in Japan, and usually these the, the little pictures were drawn inside circles and the first one was of um, somebody searching uh, corresponds to uh, you could say when we, we start to become dissatisfied with our lives and, and uh, start looking for something to assuage our suffering and then the second picture is the same person now sees some footprints, some footprints of the ox. This equates with uh, hearing the teaching, the teaching of, um, could be the Four Noble Truths, or um, the possibility of freeing ourselves from greed and anger and delusion. So hearing the teaching, and then the third picture um, is, is glimpsing the ox, getting, getting a, a fleeting but direct encounter with the ox. And then um, the fourth one is grasping the ox, um, uh, the fifth, taming it. Um, so, so grasping the ox suggests a kind of um, something more full-bodied than just glimpsing it, um, have, getting it in hand, where one can really start to to work with it. You could say, and then going from there to taming the ox. In other words, this is where we we are. Uh, really beginning to actualize our understanding of the nature of things um, and taming particularly um, suggests 
um, training to to tame to tame anything is to to engage in in changing habits. Anyone who who's trained a dog um, knows about this. It's all about repetition. Then, or say, learning a musical instrument, you you do scales and, and lots of scales to become proficient. In the next uh, picture, d- depicts this guy um, riding the ox. In the, the, it's often entitled "Riding the Ox Home." And this is where where things become more easeful. There's, a, there's a, the beginnings of, of some real uh, mastery. You and the ox are now working together smoothly, a unit. And then the seventh um, picture is, is entitled Ox Forgotten, Self Alone. And the picture usually here is of of the same person now sitting outside his little hermitage, um, looking out over the, the scenery. And this is where um, you're so um, intimate and so in harmony that you no longer think about enlightenment as something out there. It's, it's internalized to the point where it can be forgotten about as a thing and then the next one number eight is both ox and self forgotten and this is um, shown in these, these this series it's just, it's just the, the circle is empty there's nothing depicted in it at all so here it's just one step closer to intimacy no thought of self or other Then the ninth one is um, entitled Returning to the Source and is usually just shown as, as a scene, a willow tree, a stream maybe. This is where you see everything as enlightenment. There's nothing which is not enlightened mind. And still this is not the ultimate Number 10 shows uh, a jolly looking guy with a big belly and a bag over his shoulder Um, and it's called Returning to the Marketplace with Helping Hands. So the the highest or most developed of these 10 is, is showing somebody who's just completely blending in with others carrying his sack with little goodies for the children in it and just responding where needed uh, when help is needed so these are the ten so again Roshi Graves says 
The 10 oxherding pictures clearly illustrate the need for consistent dedication to practice after initial awakening. Although the Kensho stories spotlight the third picture in particular, the stage of seeing the ox, the fourth through tenth pictures map the higher stages of spiritual development to be realized through continued practice. In the Three Pillars account of Mr. K.T., Taji Roshi uses the ox herding pictures to instruct K.T. after his initial awakening. This is a quote. There is a tremendous difference between shallow and deep realization, and these different levels are depicted in the ten ox herding pictures. The depth of your enlightenment is no greater than that shown in the third picture, namely that of seeing the ox. Your kensho is such that you can easily lose sight of it if you become lazy and forego further practice. But if you continue with Zazen, you will reach the point of grasping the ox. Beyond the stage of grasping the ox is the stage of training it, followed by riding it, which is a state of awareness in which enlightenment and ego are seen as one and the same. Next, the seventh stage is that of forgetting the ox. The eighth, that of forgetting the ox as well as oneself. The ninth, the grade of grand enlightenment, which penetrates to the very bottom and where one no longer differentiates enlightenment from non-enlightenment. The last, having completely finished one's training, one moves as himself among ordinary people, people helping wherever possible, free from all attachment to enlightenment. To live in this last stage is the aim of life and its accomplishment may require many cycles of existence. I'll say a little bit here about this last sentence of Taji Roshi's um, teaching for Mr. KT. To live in the last stage is the aim of life and its accomplishment may require many cycles of existence. Many cycles of existence. This, um, this puts our efforts here and now into, into a, a, a very great framework this is, this is uh, very helpful if we can have this long view, if we can understand um, that perfecting ourselves is something that just doesn't happen over even this one lifetime, but over many lifetimes, and not only just over many lifetimes, but over eons. The sutras um, hammer this point home again and again and again. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas uh, train themselves for eons. Unimaginable amounts of time that it takes to, to realize um, Bodhisattvahood and Buddhahood. If we can see see things in this way, then then we it's it's clear that we have to develop great patience. 
great persistence. These are essential. But a question arises out of this. What if I don't believe in rebirth? Well, you certainly don't have to believe in it. Um, You don't have to believe in anything, really, except that the Buddha wasn't lying and wasn't mistaken when he said, we are all Buddhas. But it's certainly harder to practice if you are thinking only in terms of having this life. This one life. It's helpful if you can, I'd say, at least stay open to the possibility that you'll get another chance after this lifetime, and another, and another, that there is a continuity to our lives. The problem for for um, we for us um, modern people is the is how strong uh, scientific materialism is in our in our ways of, of approaching the world. We we want evidence. And um, want something tangible to, to prove to us that that um, rebirth is, is true. It's a little bit about this in, in the um, book called White Sail by Finley Norbu. Um, got a subtitle Crossing the Waves of Ocean Mind to the Serene Continent of the Triple Gems and he talks about he talks about this uh, what he characterizes as nihilism or the, the um, not believing in in um, continuity of um, life from life to lifetime to lifetime he, he writes, if we do not believe in what we cannot see, it does not mean that it does not exist. If someone is blind, he cannot see anything, but this does not mean that what he cannot see does not exist, since it can be seen by others. If we do not believe in what we cannot hear, it does not mean that it does not exist. If someone is deaf, he cannot hear anything, but this does not mean that what he cannot hear does not exist, since it can be heard by others. If we do not believe in what we cannot say, it does not mean that it does not exist. If someone is mute, he cannot say anything, but this does not mean that what he cannot say does not exist, since it can be said by others. The nihilist point of view is one of the biggest problems for all beings. It only relies on trusting temporary circumstances that cannot be depended on any more than a prostitute can depend on an uncertain appearance of her customers. Since the nihilist point of view distorts perception through its singular focus on substance, 
intangible spiritual phenomena cannot be seen clearly and intangible continuous mind cannot be recognized. Intangible continuous mind cannot be recognized. This is the um, the mind that that isn't born and doesn't die, not our ordinary discriminating consciousness, but what lies behind that. Just a little bit more here. We may say we cannot believe in continuous mind because we can't perceive it. Yet we believe with conviction in the continuity of our conceptions. We are certain that the past comes, becomes the present and the present becomes the future. Actually, we are never disconnected from continuous mind and we are always using ideas that reflect the mind's continuity. But trying to locate ourselves somewhere tangibly within time, we prevent ourselves from recognizing this continuity and opening to natural awareness. There is an old Himalayan saying that while being born, there's no memory of making love, and while making love, there is no memory of being born. If we recognize pure, transparent, continuous mind, we can clearly see past and future lifetimes which show this continuity in the same way as we clearly see what is happening to us now. But because we do not perceive it, we do not believe it. Even though enlightenment can be attained through practice, if we do not believe in practice because we do not accept continuous mind, we are automatically prevented from using our actually uninterrupted connection to continuous mind and our potential to increase inexhaustible pure spiritual power by transforming this continuity into its pure essence. When we shield ourselves in this way from perceiving anything that contradicts what we already accept as true, we only maintain our nihilist point of view. So we may... We may strongly feel that um, rebirth is, is, is not something we can have faith in, but at least if we can hold, hold open the possibility of it, it can be very, very helpful. He continues, there are many different points of view within nihilism, but they all have in common a basic belief in the continuity of mind, a basic disbelief in the continuity of mind. The consciousness of sentient beings is considered to be a momentary biological development that occurs as a random event and then depends on ephemeral circumstances which arise by chance. Since mind is thought of only as a collection of temporary inner and outer phenomena which ceases at death, death, the only continuity of mind accepted in nihilism is within the duration of the lifetime of a sentient being. The other, the flip side of of nihilism um, is eternalism. Um, And this is also seen to be uh, mistaken from the Buddhist point of view. But 
interestingly, um, Sidney Norbo here says um, that although it's it's um, not entirely correct, it is in some sense more positive than a nihilistic point of view because at least there is a belief in continuity of mind and in an an ultimate destiny. He says, since this is not a belief in the negation of nothingness, it is much more positive than any nihilistic view. The the nihilist view tends to put put us in a space where, as one writer put it, we feel alone and and afraid in a world we never made. It's a lonely place to be, a barren place. Another way, though, that we can um, generate this this, uh, longer view um, this, this um, a, a view that, that, that encompasses more than our brief lifetime is uh, to think in evolutionary terms that through our, through our work on ourselves and through our actions we contribute to um, collective evolution to the well-being of um, Everyone, and that there is some effect in terms of our um, evolving on others, not only in our own generation but in future generations too. Back to our, our text, our essay. The section containing Yasutani Roshi's private encounters with Westerners likewise makes it clear that Kensho is only the beginning of the journey. When a student pointed out that certain people become more grasping and egotistical after enlightenment experience, Yasutani Roshi responded, With the first enlightenment, the realization of oneness is usually shallow. Yet if one has genuinely perceived, even though dimly, and continues to practice devotedly for five or ten years, his inner vision will expand in depth and magnitude as his character requires flexibility and purity. One, once those actions are still dominate, one in whose those actions are still dominated by ego cannot be said to have had a valid enlightenment. Furthermore, an authentic experience not only reveals one's imperfections, but it simultaneously creates the determination to remove them. So it's like we get to get to see more clearly our, our shortcomings, uh, but are also given um, the the uh, equipment, you could say, to to work more effectively with them. In his introduction to Zen Master Basui's Dharma talk and letters, Roshi Kapla relates that even after coming to awakening, Basui continued to practice assiduously until he completely dispelled his persistent question, 
who is the master. The moving Iwasaki letters, um, these were the letters uh, between uh, Yaiko Iwasaki and, and Harada Roshi. Uh, Yaiko Iwasaki was a, a, a young woman who contracted tuberculosis and as she was dying of tuberculosis she had a series of um, uh, awakening experiences. The moving Iwasaki letters, um, both the letters themselves and Harada Roshi's comments, comments on them, treat enlightenment as a byproduct of resolute, devoted zazen, not an end in itself. Stated differently, enlightenment is a process without an end point. Uh, and, and she quotes a little bit of these, uh, this correspondence, starting with Yaiko Iwasaki. Truly, I see that there are degrees of depth and enlightenment. I am ashamed of my defects and will make every effort to discipline my character. Far from neglecting Zazen, I have every intention of strengthening even further my powers of concentration. I am profoundly aware of the need for diligent self-cultivation. I can now appreciate how down dangerously one-sided a weak Kensho can be. And then Harada Roshi says, a one-sided realization remains a one-sided realization, regardless of how many koans one has passed. What people fail to realize is that their enlightenment is capable of endless enlargement. Endless. Endless enlargement. Nevertheless, the small mind is amazingly adept at hearing what it wants to hear. Actually, it, does not, it often does not even hear what it hears or what itself is saying. This is one of the reasons why in Buddhism we often say things three times. The first to say it, the second to listen, and the third to have it go to the heart. The danger of distortion is a phenomenon that almost every teacher faces. In my own case, sensitivity's listener's perverse ability to misapprehend not to not just hear has made me wary of allowing my Dharma talks to be recorded. Perhaps if the words are spoken and then allowed to fade away, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, there will be less likelihood that they will cause confusion or worse. I have the very same feeling. A talk is, is given in a particular place and time to a particular group of people and um, of course there's room for that group to miss here but even more for um, others listening to the recording afterwards but on the other hand there are people who can't get to Taisho and so um, for that reason we do record them and, uh, and um, allow people to, to listen to them after they've been given but um, much better if the words can be just allowed to fade away as, as Roshi Graves says here. She continues, but keeping Dharma talks out of circulation does not resolve the koan of talking about Kensho. Simply put, if enlightenment is never talked about, how will people know it's possible? And if it is talked about, how can that be done in such a way 
that people will not become greedy for the experience and overly attached to it as a goal. I wrestled with this dilemma when I first began teaching. If enlightenment were never talked about, it would be doing violence to the teaching handed down to me by my teacher. But if it were, I needed to do so in a way that reflected my own feelings about practice, based on my, own tr- my training with Roshi Kaplow and my experience at the centre. I just want to say, um, just t- um, take a diversion here for a minute. Say something about about um, attachment to goals and and how much we much we need to direct ourselves towards awakening versus uh, not doing so. And just want to turn to another article in the same book, uh, the one by Roshi Kolhead, where he's discussing the same point about this dilemma um, about publishing enlightenment accounts and how they can provoke a grasping state, a greed, a greedy, acquisitive kind of attitude. He says um, that a dramatically written enlightenment count does have the potential to stimulate desire in the reader. But that we shouldn't just uh, dismiss desire entirely. He says, egoistic desire or greed is understood in Buddhism as one of the three poisons that give rise to human suffering. If enlightenment stories merely incited greed, it would be best to keep them secret or even destroy them. Yet human beings also have exalted desires that can be nourished by descriptions of awakening. In Pali, the original language of Buddhism, a distinction is drawn between higher and lower desires. Tanha, um, literally uh, thirst, was sometimes translated as craving, um, refers to the egoistic desire to have something. But there's another word um, in Pali for desire, chanda. And this one signifies the, the desire to do something. He writes, the desire... The highest aspiration in Mahayana Buddhism is to attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. This intention is voiced in Zen centers and temples throughout the world in the four Bodhisattva vows. All beings without number I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. And he says, really, if ever, do we find a beginner whose response to the lure of enlightenment is motivated purely by altruism? 
Usually it is the opposite. Although people come to practice sick of their selfish desires, those egoistic drives still predominate for some time. Eventually lower desires can be transmuted into higher ones. And in order to, to begin something, we need, we need to have to set an intention. And this is what vows are all about. You could say they're, they're life, life um, affirming desires. Uh, come under this category of, of chanda, the desire to do something. But, but we do bring we do bring all our, our defilements w- with us into practice, and and find that we are relating to our practice um, with the very things that we come to practice to um, try and um, get past. This comes out as particularly comes out particularly clearly when um, we get to uh, work on a koan and we, we find to our dismay that we're relating to the koan um, with our, with our, our um, usual in the usual way that we relate to the world with, with our, our, our habits if we if we are um, our habit is to to try to control. Then we find ourselves trying to control the, the koan, or we might get angry with it, or run from it, or feel stuck, feel that we can't do it, or we might try to analyze it. These 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 irksome things that bring us. Um, suffering elsewhere we find oh they're right here where we're working it can also be things which which um, um, work quite well in, in our ordinary lives but when we apply them to um, birth and death they 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 don't help at all. Roshi Grace in her article goes on to talk about some of the ways in which she um, came to teach in uh, in different ways from her teacher Roshi Kaplow, and one of one of them um, was the Kyosaku, how she used the Kyosaku in her in her center. She relates how she she was never comfortable with what she saw as the of the extreme samurai-like use of the kyosaku. She says that it seemed to go against the very heart of practice, 
namely that you are training because you want to liberate all sentient beings. To me, it felt contradictory to strike people with a stick to encourage them to do what they were already doing, had vowed to do, wanted to do, and were striving mightily to do. Moreover, if you had to be hit in order to do the work, wouldn't you become dependent on someone pushing and exhorting you to do what you should be your own responsibility? If you use a crutch when there is no injury, your leg muscles will atrophy. In the end, you will not be able to walk without it. I hope that if the stick were used much less, people would learn to rely more on themselves to rouse energy and strengthen determination. And this is, this is also something that, that Roshi Kolhe did. Um, this, this stick, over the time we were, even when we were at the centre in the 90s, the stick um, was, uh, the, 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 this frequency of use and the, and the, and the intensity of its use um, was lessened. Still, it was not an easy decision to let go of the Kyosaku. Part of me actually wondered whether the spirit of Rinzai or Manjushri would come and chop my head off for such heresy. In fairness, it must be said that there are those for whom the stick is a tremendous aid, helping to banish sleepiness during long hours as Zazen, giving a jolt of energy when the body-mind is flagging, and clearing the mind of distracting thoughts. What to do? Eventually a solution appeared. Simply give people a choice. If someone wants the stick, it is offered. If, it's, if not, that's fine. Do people still work hard without the constant encouragement and pressure of the Kyosaku? You bet they do. The unique conditions and structure of a Sushin. The hours of Zazen, the silence, Doksan, chanting and talks exert an inward push that is impossible to avoid. There are centres where the, the kiosaku is, is, has been used the kiosaku has been completely removed, where maybe it's on the altar, but it's um, that's the extent of it. Um, here, I've felt that it's it's something that is helpful for most people. Um, it does help to energise us and uh, helps to, us to be able to drop tension, to shake up stuck energy. And also, it is a, it's a form of contact. We spend the whole day in Sishin without any uh, physical contact with anybody and um, any touch, except the Kyosaku. I can remember at one point um, just uh, being struck at the enormous compassion of the monitors who would get up um, once or twice every round and hit 60 people. And that the energy and, and, and care with which they would do this and just crying in gratitude for, for this, this, this dana that they were giving round after round after round. The stick also, in a sense, unifies the zendo. It, 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 it brings us all together in a, in a way. So it's something that, that benefits not only 
when us when we're being being struck, but also the sound and the the energy of it. So we've 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 retained it in our sashins, but um, as with um, Roshi Grave, it's it's optional. If if somebody um, doesn't find it helpful, then of course that's fine. It isn't it isn't suitable for everybody. It depends on our on our kind of on our constitution. If we have a very um, a very sensitive constitution, it really may not be it may be too too much too heavy-handed. She continues, as a corollary to this low-key use of the kyosaku, I try to de-emphasize Kensho and place greater emphasis on the necessity to practice for the sake of practice. This is, this is absolutely a core understanding. If we can, um, moment by moment, Simply practice for the sake of practice. To practice for and in and of this moment. Master Dogen, um, in his writings, emphasizes this over and over and over again. She continues, Not that I don't talk about awakening, I do. It comes up in Dharma talks frequently, but in Sashin I try not to make even the slightest suggestion that if you do not come to awakening in this Sashin, your practice is deficient, or that you are not working hard enough, or your aspiration is half-hearted. I hope this will help people avoid being ensnared by the trap of Kensho obsession. In particular, I hope that Zen students will not fall into the mistaken belief that one who has had Kensho is automatically wiser, greater in stature and more knowledgeable about everything than those who have not yet awakened. We can so, so easily form, fall into um, comparisons, comparing ourselves to others. We lose sight of the truth that uh, we all Buddhas, that we all, whether we know it or not, uh, Buddha nature is is functioning. We are the functioning of Buddha nature. And also, from the relative perspective, to remind ourselves that we all of us complex, multifaceted beings completely unique with, with unique karma and we, we it is it is delusional to compare uh, with ourselves with others she goes on to say that no, no matter how hard a teacher tries um, there will always be people who are preoccupied with Kensho.
she says then, um, another danger arises when enlightenment is separated from compassion. If enlightened wisdom is not expressed through compassionate action, it is not true enlightenment. Without compassion, practice becomes stale and egocentric. Even if some benefit accrues, writes one master, because confined to oneself alone, it cannot, cannot but be small. Likewise, compassionate action must be grounded in enlightened wisdom. Pursuing one at the expense of other stunts spiritual growth. Unfortunately, when practitioners are striving to realize wisdom, compassion is all too often looked upon as the poor relation. You think we read these stories about about um, about Zen, and they just can be so alluring. Um, masters saying zany things, and usually male masters, and um, besting others in dharma combat. It can all be. It can all look great, much more interesting and and alluring than compassion. You know, compassion, we might express that through giving somebody a bedpan, helping them get dressed. So we can we can latch on to um, Enlightenment and and not see the, this other face, this um, other side, or not not be interested in it. But throughout the teaching, it's compassion and wisdom are described as being like two wings of a bird. You, the bird can't fly unless both are engaged. She continues, strangely, while we accept that we must exert ourselves to realize wisdom, we mistakenly believe that compassion will spring forth full-bodied at the moment of awakening. But this is not so. Compassion is latent within us, but it must be expressed to be made real, and it must be developed to reach its full potential. The Avatamska Sutra says, All the Buddhas and Tathagatas regard the heart of great compassion as the essence. Great compassion arises towards sentient beings. Depending on this great compassion, the heart of enlightenment arises. And depending on the enlightened heart, true insight becomes perfected. Compassion, then, is fundamental. Through it, the dynamic outflowing of our awakened mind becomes the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara's 100 thousand hands and eyes Taoist sages teach that compassion that courage arises from compassion interestingly Christians do too this um, saying in Christianity perfect love casteth out fear
doing this work is not easy at first, but with great compassion in the heart, it is possible. No longer does one practice in order to become enlightened. One practices for the sake of all beings who suffer. Zen Master Tore states it concisely. By the power of the vow of great compassion, all karmic obstacles disappear and all merit and virtue strength are completed. No principle remains obscure. All ways are walked by it. No wisdom remains unattained. No virtue incomplete. Those who realize that wisdom must be integrated into their lives through compassionate action are motivated to keep working despite all obstacles. Those whose motivation to practice is solely to succor themselves will find a thousand reasons to avoid persevering when difficulties arise. This this points to how helpful our, our great vow is. It's, it's, um, it's recalled to, uh, as somebody said to me the other day, to live large, to, to live and work in a way that, that includes all beings. Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. Mm-hmm.